Only the brave-hearted dare to listen. If a path to the better there be, it begins with a full look at the worst. The disintegration of empire. Shake ourselves awake. Hello, this is Michael Dowd, host of Post Doom, regenerative conversations exploring overshoot grief, grounding, and gratitude. In this conversation, recorded in August of 2019, I speak with Sean Chamberlain. Sean is an author, an activist. He's just a cherished brother on this path. His blog is Dark Optimism. It's fabulous. He has furthered David Fleming's work in Lean Logic and Surviving the Future. We've titled this, What Story Do You Want Your Life to Tell? It begins with three previews. Preview one. It hurts to let go of the stories that we've been told about what makes sense as a, as a life path and to accept yes. that the stories that we were raised in, most of us, don't lead where they said they were going to lead. <laughs> they, don't, they don't lead to Star Trek. Um, they lead to the annihilation of life on Earth. And the space between stories is one of the most awkward and painful places because you don't have anything to make sense of life with. Preview two. You know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm living in a dying world. And it's actually, it's the same dying world I lived in yesterday, but today I see it for what it is. And then the question of what now somehow is, is actually lighter and freer because before I was spending so much energy on denying my actual predictions on what was unfolding, my actual beliefs about what was happening. And I kept, no, we must keep hope. You know, we must stay positive. We must, but I didn't really believe it. And so it was exhausting to continually be, you know, trying to find hope. So when I could actually accept, okay, I don't think I can change this. I think, you know, we're headed into a collapse scenario. We're headed into, um, what David calls the climacteric, this, you know, coming together of all these intertwined crises. Once you step beyond that threshold and actually accept that, actually a huge amount of energy is liberated. Yes. Amount of energy. And that, that hope beyond hope is actually stronger than the original hope because it's no longer really attached to outcomes. It's just about telling a story with our lives that we're proud to tell in the context that we find ourselves. And, you know, the, the kind of, the default hope, the, the must-stay-positive hope, is kind of fragile because it's constantly being threatened by information that maybe maybe our hope is misplaced. Yes. But that hope beyond hope, there's nothing can challenge it. Like, you know, no matter what kind of future we face, no matter how wrong I inevitably am about how the future's going to unfold, I want to tell a story with my life that I'm deeply proud to tell. Mm. And nothing can make me doubt that. Preview three. And so, yeah, so then I, I started to, you know, find a peer group, basically, um, which felt like kind of finding an oasis in the desert. And, and to anyone else who's, you know, in a similar place of feeling sort of alone with the apocalypse, like I would say, you know, that's the key thing is find a peer group. 
like find other people who care like i mean now they're like resilience.org is a great website like go on resilience.org start chatting to people find out who's local to you like but whatever your interests are like don't be just sitting there with the internet (laughs) (laughs) because it's it just is so hard and not conducive to the kind of um yeah the kind of interactions i mean there's a wonderful line from david's work actually he says um do nothing that matters without consulting a conversation wow do nothing that matters without consulting a conversation wow the conversation begins well first of all i want to say sean that that you um you're making available david's work in such a compelling way um and in such a accessible way has been huge for many of us. And so I just want to acknowledge in addition to your own work uh, on dark optimism and sort of your own contributions, the fact that you have uh, so faithfully and powerfully uh, furthered David's legacy is just really huge. Um, I mean, uh, honestly, it still, it feels, it feels like the best thing I've done. What, what's up for you now? Like, what you- so give us a little sense of your work um, and then also what you're uh, particularly concerned about or passionate about uh, at this time. Hmm. Uh, well, in terms of my work to date, um, so you mentioned it kind of goes under this banner of, of dark optimism. Um, I was involved in the early days of the Transition Towns movement, uh, wrote the second book of that movement, chaired a, an organization called the Ecological Land Cooperative, which is basically helping people to access land for ecological projects and get through the the planning permission system and the and the financial difficulty of accessing land. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, we've talked about David Fleming's work. I mean, he was a great friend and mentor of mine. Recently, quite involved with the Extinction Rebellion over here in England, mm-hmm. one of the one of the earliest arrestees as part of that movement. Got a film coming out uh, in a few months called um, called the sequel. What will follow our troubled civilization, which is in many ways, a kind of introduction to David Fleming's work for uh, people who maybe haven't encountered it through the books. And uh, at the moment, I actually just just the other day published uh, a blog post called um, Humanity, Not Just a Virus with Shoes, which is getting quite a lot of reaction um, because I've been seeing this this idea around a lot. Um, I mean, even, you know, in The Matrix, for example, Agent Smith sits down with Morpheus and says, every mammal on this planet adjusts to its environment and finds some kind of equilibrium, but you don't, you just move into an area and you consume and consume. And the only way you can maintain yourself is by spreading to a new area like a virus and things like extinction rebellion are kind of bringing awareness of the ecocidal nature of our civilization to more and more people. More and more people are starting to get the dark without getting the optimism. <laughs> and, um, and very often there is just this, this, this self-loathing that comes from, you know, well, this is just what humanity is. We're just this terrible cancer on the planet. Uh, and really the essence of my piece is to say that that's probably a fair critique of, of this culture. Yes. But it's not a fair critique of humanity. And, um, you know, there are far older cultures than ours that have lived for tens of thousands of years without annihilating everything around them. And there's nothing about being human that means that we have to follow the values that lead to this culture of devastation and death. And I think, I mean, that's probably a sort of epitome of dark optimism in a way. It's like, we need to acknowledge like how, how wrong we're going. Um, but I always try, there's, um, 
there's a line I love so much that I've actually got it uh, quoted permanently on the on the top of my website, which is from Raymond Williams, who said, "To be truly radical is to make hope possible rather than despair convincing." Mm-hmm. And I'm a firm believer in that. And so, yeah, that's one of the conversations I'm quite actively involved in at the moment. I think resilience.org have got that piece up on their front page at the moment, so it's getting quite a lot of lot of traffic and discussion, and and leading quite directly into one of the great schisms I think that there is between people who think about this stuff, which is between a, a kind of deterministic view that, you know, our path is set by our nature or our genetics or the inherent what it is to be human and, you know, the environmental conditions. And on the other hand, people who like myself probably are more arguing, well, we have choice, you know, we can actually see what's happening and make decisions and, um, and cultural evolution can happen a great deal faster than genetic evolution. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, that's one conversation that's quite active for me at the moment. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's one of the things that I've appreciated about your work is that you find a way, as is my nature, to um, bridge uh, seemingly divergent perspectives that are actually in agreement on probably 80 to 90%. I mean, I saw you recently did that with uh, respect to... Uh, Jeremy Lent and uh, and Jim Bendel um, and what you're now speaking and then and then there was a piece that you referred me to uh, when we were in the process of scheduling this call. Say, yeah, say, the, the, the secret truth behind environmentalist favorite argument. Yes, yes. Say something about that because I thought that was really excellent and and the listeners of this podcast series I think would greatly value from that. Okay, well, actually, that was a piece I wrote maybe... That was 2013, as I recall. Right, right, yeah, quite a while back. Um, But it's one that seems to periodically get rediscovered and do the rounds again. (laughs) Um, And, yeah, I mean, basically, it was, was, um, I suppose, me grappling with with the darkness of our situation myself and kind of getting, getting a bit frustrated that I'd constantly be hearing this same argument between environmentalists in whatever context. Um, which would be on the one hand, people saying, um, you know, we need radical change. We need revolution because otherwise we're just addressing the symptoms and we're not really getting to the root causes. And I think, yeah, okay, fair enough. And then on the other hand, you'd have someone arguing saying, we don't have time to wait for radical change or revolution. You know, everything's so urgent. We've got to just act with the frameworks that we've got now. And I sort of think, yeah, fair enough. And these arguments would get really, really tiring because both sides have a point <laughs> and and they'd both be kind of arguing back and forth back and forth you know all night long or all, all career long and the, the reason i think that those arguments were never resolved is because they're both right yes, like exactly we, we do need radical change and there probably isn't time for radical change um and so the question for me the interesting question is well what then what if both of those things are true where does that leave us and I think very often, I mean, this is where I was quite involved with Dark Mountain from the early days as well. And this is where that whole thing comes in. I think Dark Mountain creates a space where we can at least ask those questions. Like, what if it's too late to achieve the thing that we thought we were trying to achieve? And what if what we're hoping for is, in fact, anti-future? I mean, I see hope not as neutral, that there are things that we can put our hope in that lead us to continue living in a overshoot uh, prone and uh, and uh, life destroying manner, and there are hopes that we can have that can lead us to live in a downshifted, downscaled, uh, more local and community uh, uh, ecologically wise manner. And so, hope 
is kind of like, I've said this in some other interviews, hope is like liquid. It's like, do you have hope? Do you have hope? Do you have liquid? Well, some liquids will sustain you. Some liquids will kill you. So it's what we have hope in. And I think if our hope isn't grounded in ecological reality um, and human understanding of, of cultures, this is why I so appreciate your work in furthering David Fleming's profound understanding of human cultural thrive, the difference between cultures that thrive and cultures that self-destruct. I want to come back also to to one thing that you mentioned earlier, which is, you know, this idea that some people have that just we're just inherently self-destructive. We're inherently terrible. You know, we're a virus with boots or whatever virus with shoes. One of the things I love about Edward Goldsmith, Teddy Goldsmith's work, uh, The Way and and, uh, an ecological worldview and others. But, you know, Goldsmith made a half a career in showing the difference between sustainable cultures for the first 97 to 98% of human history, living more or less in a way that didn't defile and destroy everything they depended upon. In other words, relating to the ecosphere or the biosphere is a greater thou rather than a lesser it. And um, certainly industrial culture and other human-centered anthropocentric rather than ecocentric cultures, which destroy their own base by, by definition. That's what, that's practically the guaranteed thing. Once you shift out of ecocentrism to human-centered anthropocentrism. Um, and so I, I appreciated you bringing that up because I, I find that many people just assume that our species in, is incapable of living sustainably, incapable of living in a non-self-destructive way, in a, in a pro-future way, like other animals. And when you realize that, no, for, you know, 97% of our history, for like 40,000 generations or more, we've lived more or less that. And ultimately, religion, it turns out, or life ways is the way Teddy Goldsmith talked about it, but life ways is that element of society. Society, that aspect of the, the moral voice of society that ensures that limits are honored upon pain of death or being ostracized, that their limits are sacred. Um, so I don't know whether you know this, but uh, Teddy Goldsmith and David Fleming were great friends. Um, I, I've, I had heard that, yes. Yeah, and, uh, and I think Teddy was, was a big supporter of David in his early days as a writer and helping him kind of get established through The Ecologist, which I'm sure you're aware of and the like. I mean, I think part of the problem is that people see actually evolution as a linear thing right that you know that it started off with sort of something primordial and has gone on this in, in, inevitable journey to the pinnacle of us right um whereas evolution isn't directional in that way you know sometimes it goes down dead ends sometimes it backs up sometimes all kinds of things happen so right. but because that that idea has been embedded partly by that famous image of you know the ape and then the upright ape and then the human and and so we look at today and if you assume that all of history inevitably led to today then you can sort of think well human nature is to end up where we are now whereas if you see evolution as just a process that's exploring all kinds of pathways some of which are good and some of which are not going to work so well then you might just as well take any historical perspective throughout history and that's where we're coming from where you're saying well you know, if you'd happened to look at humanity 10,000 years ago, there'd be no way that you'd be saying, well, this is inevitably going to destroy everything around it because that wasn't what we were doing then. Right, right. Um, and, uh, and this actually ties in, I think, a lot with what we were starting to talk about around hope because for me, it's, it's not just what we place our hope in. It's the sort of there's something about the kind of hope that we have as well. Um, there's something around... <sighs> something around the kind of emotion 
of um, how we confront things. So, you know, as I was saying, there's something very difficult about acknowledging, well, what if we need radical change and there isn't time for radical change? There's something emotionally that makes us not want to ask that question and find it more comfortable to just kind of go round and round in circles with each other. And I think that something is is very related to grief, actually. It, It hurts to let go of the stories that we've been told about what makes sense as a as a life path and to accept yes. that the stories that we were raised in most of us don't lead where they said they were going to lead <laughs> they don't they don't lead to star trek um they lead to the annihilation of life on earth and the space between stories is one of the most awkward and painful places because you don't have anything to make sense of life with yeah and it's it's quite um an emotional challenge to sit in that space and um as we discussed very briefly by email i i sort of came to an understanding of this to some extent through david fleming's very sudden death and then my late fiance who suddenly died just three weeks after david very suddenly died and that was an experience of i mean you know, David was a mentor who was really helping me to figure out how to build a life around these kind of interests and passions outside of the mainstream framework. Mm-hmm. And so when he died, it really was like my entire sort of work career world sort of disappeared. And my entire sort of romantic personal life world disappeared. And I found myself in a very personal way in a space between stories you know so so your fiance died suddenly only three or four weeks after david uh, died in 2010 is that right that's right yeah oh my gosh i can't even imagine well so that's the thing is it it it, you know on a really you know personal visceral unavoidable way the stories i'd been telling myself about kind of progress in my own life evaporated in the space of a, a month and and so i found myself thrust into that that kind of space between stories and initially i i didn't really care about very much at all i just sort of shut down which i think is what you do when of course when something hurts that much and then a, a really close friend of mine said something that well it changed my life um she said to me that the best way to honor those you love after they die is to keep alive what was best in them in the world through your own life. Yes. And at that point, that was all I cared about. Like that was the only thing that contained any spark of motivation for me was if I can honor them in some way, Yes. then that's actually worth getting out of bed for. Yeah. And in David's case, well, (laughs) so we worked really closely together for the um, five years or so between meeting and, and his death. But the one thing he never let me look at was Lean Logic. Um, uh, we worked really closely on everything else, but he said we were too close and it was too close to his heart. And if I looked at it and didn't like it, we'd fall out basically. And he didn't want us to fall out. Right. But after his death, he didn't really have close families. So um, I was involved with sort of going through his possessions and sorting them out and getting the house ready to be sold and that kind of stuff. And I found the manuscript for his book and I figured, you know, I'm allowed to read it at this point. As you know, it's it's incredible, and I I so it was very obvious to me very quickly that the the way I could best honour him and keep what was most beautiful in him alive in the world was by 
by seeing his books published without getting into the nitty gritty of that. It's, it's that fundamental thing about the, the kind of hope because at that point there wasn't any point anymore in hoping that these people would come back to life. You know, that's, that's, that hope is gone. Like I don't have any means of even working towards that. It's just impossible. And so a lot of my writing around that time, um, probably including that piece you mentioned for 2013 started drawing the parallels between that sort of loss of hope and the kind of loss of hope of, you know, just sustainability as it's, you know, usually sold to us that we're just going to somehow switch to renewable energies and carry on as we are. And that that's, that's a good thing. And all of that, like the death of my hope in those relationships somehow paralleled the death of the hope in the paths that were sold to us for sustainability. Yeah. But then I discovered the hope beyond hope, as some people call it. With regard to the world, I remember writing in that piece you mentioned, you know, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm living in a dying world. And it's actually, it's the same dying world I lived in yesterday, but today I see it for what it is. And then the question of what now somehow is, is, is actually lighter and freer because before I was spending so much energy on denying my actual predictions on what was unfolding, my actual beliefs about what was happening. And I kept, no, we must keep hope. You know, we must stay positive. We must, but I didn't really believe it. And so it was exhausting to continually be, you know, trying to find hope. So when I could actually accept, okay, I don't think I can change this. I think, you know, we're headed into a collapse scenario. We're headed into um, what David calls the climacteric, you know, coming together of all these intertwined crises. Once you step beyond that threshold and actually accept that, actually a huge amount of energy is liberated. Yes. A amount of energy. And that, that hope beyond hope is actually stronger than the original hope because it's no longer really attached to outcomes. It's just about telling a story with our lives that we're proud to tell in the context that we find ourselves. And the default hope, the, the must-stay-positive hope, is kind of fragile because it's constantly being threatened by information that maybe maybe our hope is misplaced. Yes. But that hope beyond hope, there's nothing can challenge it. Like, you know, no matter what kind of future we face, no matter how wrong I inevitably am about how the future is going to unfold, I want to tell a story with my life that I'm deeply proud to tell. Mm. And nothing can make me doubt that. And it was the same on the personal level. Like once I started working for their legacy and in Maria's case, my, my late fiance, um, she was from Pakistan and with her family, we opened an orphanage there in her memory because she was always very moved by, um, by the plight of, of orphans in her home country. And so doing this work to honor them is just right. <laughs> you know, I just know it's the story I want to tell with my life. And there's no information that could come to light that could make me think, oh God, what a waste of time it was publishing that book or, yeah. you know, creating that organization. And that is so powerful because in these times where so much of the news is, is bleak and awful, if we can have a motivation that's, that's that deep, that that's, that's that unchallenging, that's that implacable, that is so, so important and so valuable. And it even, I think it even has something really important to offer people in, in deep despair because 
if despair is looking at every possible outcome and thinking that they're all awful, so what's the point in doing anything? Then as soon as you see the glimpse of one possibility and that whole despair is transformed into massive motivation, yes. you, nobody wants to be in despair. And so again, you get this, this huge surge of a, a deep, resilient motivation to act in ways that make sense to you, which are not dependent on circumstances. And once you have that, then, you know, I mean, a few years ago, I had a, a quite a deep burnout experience because of this sense of, oh my God, everything's falling apart and there's so much to do. And, but again, once you're coming from that deeper place of actually, what story do I want to tell with my life? then that's not exhausting. That's beautiful. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a delight to, to actually live the way you want to live. And that's, I think, been my biggest learning over the last couple of years is to be doing my work from a place of joy, actually. Um, and to, to, to have that as my, my guiding star that actually, if I'm, if I'm feeling drained and exhausted and then I'm, then I've lost my way. Um, and actually joy is exactly the guidance that's needed for making sense of which path to take in that hope beyond hope. And it's, it's not just, you know, Oh, well, I enjoy this. So I'll do this. It's a much deeper, more reflective, you know, taking in all the information that I have, listening to the little voice that's whispering to me that maybe this isn't quite the right path for me anymore. But taking account of all of that information, then listening to joy is such a, such a guide. Yeah. Wow. I am so grateful that you just shared all that and the way that you did it, because the last six or seven minutes of what you shared pretty much encapsulates what Connie and I are meaning by post-doom consciousness. We, we were raised in a culture of expectations of more and more. Um, and then at some point, we began to realize that that's not aligned with reality. We're now looking at contraction. We're looking at collapse, just as other previous civilizations have collapsed. And that can be a doom, emotionally speaking, that can be a doom-like experience. And for many people, it is. Um, I mean, there are some people who have known, like John Michael Greer, of the rise and fall of civilizations. And so he doesn't feel it, it you know, as doom as all, at all. It's just, this is what happens. This is reality. But for most of us, emotionally, we avoid that door of doom because we are terrified that that's the end point, that we yeah. then wallow in despair. But as Paul Chaperka talks about, coming to that place beyond acceptance of finding the gift allows us to go through that door. And then all the spiritual traditions, or virtually all the spiritual traditions, align in that if you allow yourself to go through that despair, that door, and then turn around and look at the, at the, at the banner again above the sign, it still says WASF, but it's now interpreted as we are so fortunate to be alive at this time and to be able to make the difference that we can. And then I see these spheres of gratitude moving out until ultimately our own death and or our species extinction. And both are inevitable. It's just a matter of time. And so what you just articulated was a fabulous um, uh, encapsulation of that. And I, and I, I guess I want to lead this, have this lead into a little more on language, because your language of dark optimism, um, the terms that I've used for myself as a sacred realist, a religious naturalist, but around this doom stuff, around this climate and overshoot and all these other things, um, I've found the language of dark optimism, apocaloptimism, you know, that I got from Theo uh, uh, Kitchener uh, in Australia, and now post-doom as ways of getting to uh, lang in language. So I'm curious... Um, 
what language do you find useful uh, or helpful describing this uh, contracting and deteriorating future? Some have used civilizational reboot or catabolic collapse, population die-off, uh, mm. the, ex the extinction of Homo colossus, is William Catton's term, sixth great extinction, etc. Like, what language? And then, and then, say a little bit more about what dark optimism means to you and how you interpret post doom. Huh. Nice, easy question, huh? Um, <laughs> I, uh, well, I guess when David Fleming and I were having those glorious conversations we used to have, uh, we used to use his term, which is the climacteric, because he, he draws the analogy to stages in the life of a, of a person. Certainly in older medical traditions, there was this idea that every, every 14 years and every seven years was a significant point and significant things would happen at that climacteric moment. So that was his term for the converging thing. I've always rather liked um, James Howard Kunstler's rather impolite term, the uh, the great global clusterfuck seems to encapsulate, <laughs> encapsulate something of it rather well. Um, in a sense, I think that's only half of it. You know, the, the, the extent to which we're fucked is one half of the story. The other half of the story is, uh, there's a line from a, a poem I love, the Ziderata, um, whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. Mm -hmm. And and I think both of those are really essential. <laughs> There's an old Irish joke, which is, um, oh, you're, you're trying to find your way to Killarney. Oh, well, I wouldn't start from here if I were you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, if we're, if we're looking to go towards the, uh, you know, the great cultural turning towards sanity and resilience and beauty, then you know, things could be going a lot better than they are. And, and the great global cost part captures that really beautifully. But at the same time, as you say, when, once you go through that door, I mean, I would even personally be of the opinion that I chose to be alive at this particular moment in history. I mean, in some ways, that's why joy is such a great guide, because, you know, I talked about shutting down so completely after those, those intimate deaths in my life. And that was necessary to sustain myself, but it's not a nice place to be, to be completely shut down and numb and, and, and feeling nothing of any significance at all. And of course, so then you start thinking, well, how do I come back to life? And the way back to life is through, as you say, it's, it's opening all those doors inside yourself that you slammed shut and behind yeah. every door is this wall of pain because that's why you slammed it shut. But at the same time, opening those doors is, I mean, that's what grieving is. It's going through that pain to come back to life. And so, yeah, dark optimism is, for me, you know, bright, shiny optimism just annoy, it annoys me because, you know, everything isn't fine. <laughs> you know, everything really isn't fine. You're just not paying attention. But at the same time, you know, the darkness is real. It's there. Everything isn't how we want it to be. But the optimism is that we can still tell beautiful stories with our lives in this time. We can still tell beautiful stories with our culture in this time. I have a friend who says you cannot not change the world. Like whatever you do changes the world. Like if you if you follow the most default down the line, do what they tell you pathway, then that's the world that you're helping to create. So the question is, what kind of story do we want to tell? And yeah, so I guess dark optimism at the deepest level is about the balance between the genuine darkness of what's unfolding and the suffering and all the awfulness of that and the awareness that um, at the deepest level, you start asking questions about, you know, what's life for? What's life about? Yes. Um, and at that level, there's nothing about these times that stops us living meaningful, beautiful lives just as much as any people have. Paul Kingsnorth, who's a friend of mine, that often has this lovely line about uh, 
history as just a history of apocalypses. You know, if you were a Native American, you've lived through the apocalypse. If you were an Anglo-Saxon, you've lived through the apocalypse. If you were, if you were in Kashmir right now, you're living through the apocalypse. Like, and there's um, science fiction where writer William Gibson said, the future is already here. It's just unevenly distributed. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, that to me is, is so profound because people are still in this sort of shrinking circle of affluence. I mean, I think for most of the world, the apocalypse has already happened. And people inside this shrinking circle of affluence are still saying, well, where's your apocalypse then? You know, everything's fine as far as I can see. Uh, And and so I find that quite useful language, this kind of shrinking circle within which people still have the ability to sit around and pretend like everything's fine when, yeah, for most of the world, it it really isn't. And I, I would extend that far beyond the human world as well. I mean, you know, when, when we're counting deaths, not just in thousands or millions, but in actual species, yes. you know, yes. the, the death of birth, you know, that, that there will never again be those life forms born. I mean, yeah, everything really isn't fine. <laughs> yeah. Wow. The, I mean, I, the, just that, first of all, I love the fact that you keep coming back to the story that we're telling of our lives. I, I greatly appreciate that languaging. Um, for anybody listening to this conversation, you've mentioned Dark Mountain, you mentioned Paul Kingsnorth, and uh, anybody listening to this, read the Dark Mountain Manifesto, read some of the other things there. It's just absolutely fabulous. One of the great shortcomings of I don't know, environmentalism, for want of a better word, in the broadest sense, has been that it's become so preachy. You know, it's so much about should. It's so much like, this is wrong and you shouldn't do that and rah, rah. And I've been thinking a lot about, you know, how could we get beyond that sense? You know, the, the environmentalists are classically characterized as tedious killjoys who wouldn't know how to enjoy ourselves in a vegan chocolate factory. And how how to get beyond that sort of that experience that people have of kind of oscillating between guilt and self-sacrifice mm-hmm. so you know whether it's with regard to jet flights or eating meat or you know whatever it may be there's this tendency to either be on the side of god i really shouldn't be doing this but i'm doing it anyway and i feel terrible about it or or i'm not doing this but i really wish i was because <laughs> i really miss it and i'm judging others who are doing it Exactly. Right. And it kind of invites that. And so I, th- I think the golden path that lead that, 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 that works, that isn't either of those is, is integration actually is to allow the two voices in ourselves to talk to each other. So the part of us that wants to take that flight and the part of us that doesn't want the consequences of taking that flight, let them have a conversation. And to many people's surprise, in my experience, they actually quite quickly come to agreement. Um, And then you can take that agreement forward wholeheartedly. So you can either say, well, actually, I mean, in my case, the one thing in the world I would most love to see is the great redwoods of California. And I had an opportunity um, several years ago, I was seeing a girl from California. She really wanted me to come out and meet her folks out there. It would have been, and it was just around the time, this is sort of 2000, 2002, I think. Um, where I was really starting to understand the climate impacts of flying and all of that. And I, I reflected on this and I thought, you know, I wouldn't feel right about flying to see these great life forms and in so doing contribute to their death. Yes, exactly. Like that, that actually isn't the story I want to tell with my life. And because I took the time to reflect on that and integrate that, 
I don't in any way see that as a sacrifice, despite the fact that if I could magically teleport myself anywhere in the world, it would be there. Because going there would have made me unhappy. It would have brought that cognitive dissonance and that, that challenge in myself that I would have been, well, I'm not telling the story I want to tell. So choosing not to fly was just choosing to be happier. Without a larger sense of self, a self with, that's identified with time and space, then we get into some of these quandaries, um, whereas when uh, we know that we are nature becoming aware of itself, that we are part of the body of life, not its masters, uh, and that when we, when we recognize that the past lives in us, literally, and whatever future exists is also, we contribute to that. So that sense of obligation or, or, or reciprocity that sacred relationship to time and to nature is what Joanna Macy said it really well. Um, so grateful that she'll be part of this series because she's a major mentor of many of us. Um, and she said years ago, a quote um, that I used to use in my programs, she said, this shift, the shift from seeing ourselves as separate creatures placed on earth, walking around in a universe to seeing ourselves as a mode of being of earth, an expression of the universe she said, this shift is essential to our survival because it can serve in lieu of morality and because moralizing is so ineffective. She says, sermons seldom hinder us from pursuing our self-interest. You know, I, it would never occur to me to say, Sean, don't cut off your leg. No, no, really don't cut off your leg because your leg's a part of you and you know it. Yeah. Joanna says, so are the trees in the Amazon basin. There are external lungs. And that's what we're waking up to is that we are our world. And what we do to our world, we do to ourself. There's that sense of our larger self. I do see pro-future as good, godly, divine, and pro-future policies and actions as that. Um, and I do see that there's a role in, certainly in traditional societies, there was always a role of calling that which destroys the community, that which destroys the body of life, that which is destructive, especially if it, if it, it positively influences the individual or group of individuals and yet is destructive of the larger community upon, or the future, then I, I do see evil language as appropriate or whatever condemnatory language. Um, but I think ultimately, individually, my sense of how I live my life comes out of joy. Arnie Ness, one of the founders of, of, uh, of Deep Ecology, he said environmentalism is a treacherous, or responsibility is a treacherous basis for conservation. It's got to come from love. So um, you already started sharing this, but I want to come back to, because really the heart of this uh, particular podcast series um, is people, you know, rather than people sort of sharing their, their talking points as they do in their lectures and talks, whatever, which is all great stuff. Uh, I've been amazed at the quality of the folks that have been interested in having this conversation, but also really to provide a space for people to share their, their personal journey. How did you come to, again, you shared some of it in terms of the sudden death of, of, uh, both David and your fiance, but, um, when did it begin to shift for you? When did you come to the awareness that um, perpetual progress was a myth? Was it gradual, sudden? And what was that like emotionally? So uh, share, uh, share a little bit of your, your trajectory, your life story, or your journey in terms of coming to grips with all this. I'm, I'm smiling because the fact that we were just uh, violently interrupted by my father uh, unplugging the router <laughs> is quite, quite, quite parallel to the fact that my... Uh, my, my awakening was very much prompted by a, a sudden interruption by my father. <laughs> um, 
in that uh, so over here in uh, England in 2000 we had quite a notable event which was that a lot of truckers were upset I think it was a change in fuel tax um, upset them and so they decided to blockade the oil refineries in the UK uh, and also the uh, Dover Calais connection between us and the rest of Europe what year was this 2000 okay I was at university at the time and uh, it was very very striking how as soon as these i think six or seven refineries were blocked everything ground to a halt um there were within a few days there were no cars on the roads because everyone was panic buying petrol and storing it up i was walking down the middle of a main road in york because there were no cars um within days um the supermarkets were running out of food because partly because everyone was panic buying food partly because they had just-in-time delivery systems and none of none of it could get there so this was a real real eye-opener for me and around this time, I can't remember whether it was just before or just after that, uh, my dad emailed me and he'd been reading Colin Campbell's article in Scientific American about peak oil. Yes. Um, and Colin's a friend of mine now, but I'd never heard of him at the time. And yeah, that was a real, that was really the moment for me, 2000, when I suddenly went, wow, this whole society is quite fragile. And And my dad was sending me these emails saying, you know, <laughs> he's he's a he's a he's a he's a two-hour conversation in his own right, my father. But um, but he was sending me these emails saying, essentially, you know, just you know, here's some information about what this Colin Campbell guy is saying. Um, thought I should let you know that the whole future that you were probably expecting to be having isn't going to happen. Um, actually, we're going to be descending into chaos and and starvation and war. And just thought I should let you know. Have a nice day, Dad. <laughs> um, I'm sure my kids experience me kind of like that. <laughs> I've got a 36-year-old daughter, a 34-year-old son, and a 29-year-old right. daughter. So the way you just articulated that is probably similar to them. <laughs> so, yeah, just like our interview right now, I've, I've, uh, I, I've, my, my, my smooth progress through life was rudely interrupted by my father. And to be honest, at the time, I thought, well, come on, you know, if it were that bad, it'd be all over the news. And you know, the, everyone would be talking about nothing else, and it can't be. But I thought, well, I'll look into it, you know, just to set my dad's mind at rest. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll look into it. And uh, I'm still looking into it uh, <laughs> um, 20 years on. And, uh, and that was, uh, yeah, that was something I was sort of, after university, um, I took a job initially doing sort of admin, but quite quickly worked my way up to running a, a learning center for marginalized groups. So working with drug misusers and people with mental health problems and young asylum seekers. Uh, and I really loved that work, but in those over those years, I was sort of doing more reading and research around this stuff. Um, it's funny you mentioned Paul Traferka because I remember reading his stuff way back then and dieoff.org and everything. And then, yeah, I got to a point where I thought, well, I love this work, but I'm basically helping people to reintegrate with society. But it seems like society itself is heading off a cliff, and that feels like where I want to kind of put my energies but I had no idea how I had no peer group around this stuff I had no connections but you know so what I did then was and this has been the absolute key to my life since was learn to live really cheaply learn to live without rent or mortgage a very nomadic lifestyle perhaps a bit like yourself I um, decided to take some time off from work uh, and do some research and figure out how on earth to deal with this stuff so this is like 2005 did a lot of readings, reading things like Richard Heinberg's The Party's Over and 
Endgame by Derek Jensen, I remember, was a big thing. Um, I, I, uh, Derek and I talked yesterday. I uh, had a wonderful right. conversation. And then in 2006, I heard about this course that was going to be run at a place called Schumacher College down in Devon over here. You know, obviously, when you're doing a lot of reading and stuff, there are certain voices that you think, well, I really respect where this person's coming from. And it was like they were all teaching on this course. And the one person teaching on the course who I'd never heard of was David Fleming. And so I went along, Rob Hopkins was teaching there and he'd just moved to Totnes in Devon and basically was there sort of saying, oh, I've had this crazy transition idea. Like, do you think it you know, could go anywhere? And uh, I remember sitting there with one of my fellow students on the course was a guy called Ben Brangwin, who was in quite a similar place. He'd sort of been in a quite conventional career, moving pixels around the screen, as he would say. And we were both sort of trying to figure out where to put our energies. And I remember him sort of nudging me and going, oh, this Rob guy, he's, he's got something about him. And, uh, and he put his hand up then and he said, hey, Rob, if you had, say, a couple of hundred grand to really ramp up this transition idea, what would you do with it? And Rob sort of looked back at him and went, why? If you got a couple of hundred grand burning a hole in your pocket? Uh, and Ben said, well, no, I don't. But I sort of think I might be able to raise it for an idea like this. After the course, they went off and co-founded Transition Network together. Then David Fleming was teaching us, I think, the next day or the day after. And he was, among other things, he was the inventor of the kind of carbon rationing idea. Um, and so he was there talking to us about his, his sort of working out of how that could work in practice. Because I'd never heard of him before the course, I'd looked him up online. I'd read this little booklet that he had online called Energy and the Common Purpose. And I had some questions. I thought, you know, his heart's in the right place, but this will never work. So I kind of put my hand up and asked him these questions. He said, oh, there's a very good questions. You've clearly thought about this, but they're a little outside the scope of this lesson. So maybe we should have lunch. Uh, and we had lunch. And then he said at the end of the first lunch, oh, we should have lunch tomorrow. So we had lunch again. And uh, by the end of the second lunch, he convinced me that he had the answers to my questions. Um, and this is where I made probably the most cheeky move of my life. I turned to this guy, must have been in his 60s, and said, look, I read your booklet and it was great, but it left me with these questions and you've got the answers to these questions, but they're not in your booklet. So other people are going to come up with the same answers, the same questions. Also, I don't think it's that well structured and I think I could probably, you know, improve it a bit. <laughs> and I just so to this day, remember him looking me down and up this impertinent young man telling him that I could improve his life's work. Um, and to my eternal gratitude, he said, well, okay, you know, when you're done with this course, here's my card, look me up, um, we'll see what we can do. So I went and met him. He gave me the word file of his booklet and said, show me what you can do, you know, come back when you've done something on it. So I did, sent it off to him. He invited me over to his little flat in Hampstead and, um, and yeah, said that he was impressed with what I did and let's work together on a second edition. And, uh, you know, that might lead to us working together in future. It might just be a one-off thing. It might be a total disaster, but we'll see how it goes. And he had one condition, actually, on, uh, on our working together. I said, okay, what's that? He said, um, at least once a week, we must go for a drink together at the local pub with no agenda whatsoever. Um, because as you'll know from his work, he's ever a fan of the informal and the importance of that. Yeah, uh, and he told me that he told me this story that I've never checked whether this is true or not. But apparently he told me that um, in Japan, when there's a board of a large company faces a huge decision like a takeover or something, um, they'll sit around the boardroom table, and they'll discuss it and they'll decide what they're going to do. But then they won't act on it that day. 
Instead, they'll park it till tomorrow and they'll all go out and get blind drunk together. And if it still seems like a good idea when they're all blind drunk, <laughs> then they'll act on it the next day. That's I, awesome. I have no idea whether this is actually what happens in Japan, but that's the story David told me as, as, um, as a, a symbol of how important it was that we just hang out and, and informally get to know each other as people. And those lean drinks, as we called them, were just, I mean, some of the best experiences of my life. and that that was really the start for me in many ways because then I had this incredible mentor who knew everybody you know like anytime I'd 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 be oh David I read this amazing article by such and such you'd be oh I'll ring her up we'll have coffee you know (laughs) it just you know because he'd been working on this for decades and and so yeah so then I I started to you know find a peer group basically um which felt like kind of finding an oasis in the desert and and to anyone else who's, you know, in a similar place of feeling sort of alone with the apocalypse, like I would say, you know, that's the key thing is find the peer group, like find other people who care. Like, I mean, now they're like resilience.org is a great website, like go on resilience.org, start chatting to people, find out who's local to you. Like, but whatever your interests are, like, don't be just sitting there with the internet <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> because it's, it just is so hard and not conducive to the kind of, the kind of interactions. I mean, there's a wonderful line from David's work, actually. He says, um, do nothing that matters without consulting a conversation. Wow. Do nothing that matters without consulting a conversation. Wow. Yeah. And so, yeah, from there, I mean, I could tell a lot of stories from there, but uh, from there I sort of found my, found my peer group, found my path, worked very closely with David, tried to get carbon rationing through the British government, without success because basically it was seen as too much of a threat to economic growth is the short version. And then David and Moria died. And then I threw myself into David's books and the land co-op and all the stuff that we've done. Yeah. That's great. Thanks, Sean. Wow. Uh, it's interesting because uh, a part of me wants to just sort of go to a pub and hear some of those other stories. <laughs> uh, not a me part too. of it, but, you know, <laughs> But with respect to this this particular conversation, it's interesting. Um, one of the questions that Connie originally formulated was related to the big picture. Uh, many, but many of us have found Thomas Berry, Joanna Macy, Brian Swim, others, epic of evolution, big history, big green history, especially. I found uh, my enthusiasm for big history waned when I found that it was very techno-optimist, very human-centered, very linear understanding, rather than, as we were talking about much earlier, evolution as a branching tree that explores all sorts of personality, uh, uh, possibilities. Mm-hmm. And that, um, that if uh, this is one of the reasons why I found... Um, um, a more ecologically grounded interpretation of evolution to be essential. It takes humans out of the center of things. Evolution isn't all about us. In fact, our form of consciousness may actually be both a blessing and a detriment, and it may actually be our own undoing. Um, So I'm curious, uh, one of the quotes that I love from Joanna Macy, she says, there is science now to construct the story of this journey that we've made on earth, the story that connects us with all beings. Right now, we need to remember that story, to harvest it and to taste it, for we are in a hard time, and it's the knowledge of the bigger story that's going to carry us through. So the question, have you found this epic of evolution or universe story helpful in a post-doom context, and have you delved into historical explorations of the rise and fall of civilizations and anything 
you want to share about that? Yeah, where to begin with all of that? Wow. Funnily enough, the, the work that immediately comes to mind when I think about all that you've just said is, um, is the Tao Te Ching of all oh, things. Yeah. Um, and the reason it comes to mind is not because it lays out some historical explanation, but because to my reading, it's all about the central importance of paradox in life. Um, the Tao Te Ching has this amazing way, you know, the sort of sacred text of, of Taoism has this amazing way of holding two seemingly contradictory truths in tension and not trying to resolve that. And that actually the, the, the wisdom is to be found in the dance between the two seemingly contradictory things rather than in resolving to one or the other. I think I find that a lot with this question of our, you know, of the big picture story of, of history or indeed like with the conversations that I'm in the middle of at the moment around this humanity, not just the virus piece that I wrote. On the one hand, there's, um, there's maybe two, two points of view, one encapsulated by um, the saying that, you know, you didn't come into this world, you came out of it like a wave from the ocean, um, which, you know, I think you were talking about earlier. On the other hand, the idea that, you know, you know, you're not a human being that has spiritual experiences, you're a spiritual being having a human experience. The meeting of those two perspectives between, you know, are we something spiritual having the experience of being something human and ecological, ultimately? Are we something that ultimately is birthed out of ecology. For me, there's something profoundly true about both of those. And it's not that we need to resolve one story down into the other. And actually it really puts me in mind, maybe I should read actually a, a little bit from, from David's Lean Logic, because for me, that was, that was a book that really reframed history for me, actually. There's a part, a dictionary for the future and how to survive it. And in the entry on, ecology or specifically ecology farmers and hunters talks about um, the book of Genesis and the story of Cain and Abel. Yeah, here we are. We join the story in the second chapter from the dust of the ground, Adama, God made Adam, Genesis 2, 7. God planted the garden of Eden, but warned that the fruit of the tree of knowledge was not to be eaten on pain of death. He made Eve from Adam's rib then in chapter three, the serpent tempted Eve to eat the apple despite the prohibition. It was so good that she persuaded Adam to have one too. God, who had been walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, realized what had happened and came looking for them. He threw them out of the garden, placed angels with flaming swords at the entrance to make sure they stayed out, and issued seven interesting curses. All of them have something to tell us, but curses four, five, and six have intense relevance to the transformation from hunting to agriculture, to mankind's new role as a farmer. And these are our seven curses. One, the serpent will crawl on its belly and be hated by human beings. Two, the woman will endure intense pain in childbirth. Three, the woman will yearn for her husband, but, he told Eve, he shall rule over thee. Four, the soil will be unproductive, full of thorn and thistles. Five, humankind must eat the herb of the field. Six, in order to get enough to eat, the man will endure intense hardship. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread. And seven, in death, Adam will then return to the ground. For out of it thou wast taken, for dust thou art, and to dust thou shalt return. 
With Adam's two sons, Cain and Abel, in chapter four, we begin to see these curses at work. Cain is an agriculturalist. Abel has somehow escaped the curses and is a herder, that halfway stage from the life of the hunter-gatherer. They both make sacrifices to God. Abel offers a succulent lamb. Cain comes up with what sounds like a veggie box of rather middling quality. God evidently prefers the lamb. That makes Cain jealous and Despite a short lecture from God needing, about needing a sense of responsibility towards his brother, Cain murders him. This is followed by God's new curse, this time on Cain. He will find the ground where he has murdered Abel to be unproductive. He is condemned to move on, to be a vagabond, to live in the land of Nod, the land of wandering. And now two things happen. One is that Cain turns out to be very successful as an agriculturalist the founding father of a whole people, building the first city, Enoch, complete with musicians, craftsmen working copper and iron, and a population that will restlessly spread, wander far afield. The other is that Adam has a son, another son, whom he calls Seth, and his wife takes pains to explain what he represents. For God, said she, hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. Clearly, hostilities were to be permanent between the new order of agriculture and cities and the old order of pastoralists and hunter-gatherers. The new order would win every time, but the matter would never be settled, least of all in the mind. And that's the story. We know that actually the process of domesticating plants took place over millennia, and indeed that hunting for food, fish, game and foraging is still practiced. But the shift from hunter-gathering to agriculture must have seemed sudden, and to many it undoubtedly was. The original hunter-gatherer population of Europe was practically wiped out, except in the areas such as northern Scandinavia, which were unsuitable for agriculture, in about the fifth millennium BC. The near liquidation of the indigenous Indians of North America took as little as two centuries. Wherever an agricultural people became established, their population would grow to the scale of the city, and they would expand outwards, destroying the hunter-gatherers as they went. And now this city-building, forest-felling, ground-breaking, pastoralist-murdering, serially-cursed, crazily-expansionist, energy-addicted, water-insatiable, ruthless family of Cain, having won every other battle by foul means, has piously invented environmental ethics and wants to know how it can win with regard to the ecology. He goes on. But that, for me, was a story. Yeah, that's fabulous. And, and to be honest, I still don't feel like I've answered the sort of implicit question there, which is, why? A lot of the indigenous cultures call it vetico, this, this disease that, that, we've, that we've got, this expansionist, cursed, pastoralist, murdering type of culture that David writes about. Like, why, given that the anthropological evidence is that the initial moves into agriculture weren't very good for our health and were quite difficult. Why did we move from living in the garden, as you speak, to, to the, this way of life? And actually just today, off the back of that piece I've just published, I've been recommended a book, which maybe you know, called Nature and Madness by Paul Shepard, which I've not heard of before. Yes, Paul she I learned about Paul Shepard through Dolores LaChapelle. She wrote a book called Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, Rapture of the Deep. 
concerning deep ecology and celebrating life, many of us still consider it, including David Abram, considers it probably the best book on deep ecology. She was an independent scholar, not unlike Teddy Goldsmith. And that mm-hmm. book, Sacred Land, Sacred Sex, is to this day in my top 10 most important books I've ever read in my life. And she talks about how Taoism came into existence. It was so insightful. It was like, Oh my God, basically there was a regime change and um, uh, all of the Chinese literate intellectuals uh, were forced out of the city and essentially spent over a hundred years philosophizing on the path of nature, the the way of life, the way things really are, and that humans need to live in alignment, in harmony with that reality, with that way. But she also introduced me to Paul Shepard and his whole understanding that there's a cultural um, insanity really, that when we move out of healthy societies living in a mutually enhancing relationship with primary reality, the living world, then we start seeing all kinds of mental and social dysfunctions. Well, you know, this actually leads into the other question that, uh, one of the other questions that I've been asking the the participants in this series Mm. is related to restoring the past. Mm. That Many of us have had to restore the past as well as our sense of the future, um, and I wonder if you have any, if onlys, like if only we had done X by this time, or if only our species hadn't taken this turn, or has your reinterpretation of the past sort of moved along more lines of inevitability? Hmm. I mean, inevitability is a complex concept in itself. One of the things that's always fascinated me is the sort of free will determinism debate. Well, I suppose I quite like Spinoza's take on it, which is that we've just misconceived both concepts and that in a sense, everything we do is determined by something, but you're more free the more you understand what you're determined by and, you know, choose it. Yeah. yeah. That kind of integration. Uh, yeah. I mean, in a, no, I don't think it's inevitable in the sense that I think there were other choices that could have been made. Yes. I think it's inevitable in the sense that no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should. So again, it's one of these, inherent paradoxes that i don't think is for resolving i think it's one of those that is for holding um in paradox in terms of if onlys i mean given what i've just said in a sense if onlys hmm, actually it reminds me of something that same very wise friend told me after uh after maria died which was that uh if only is not your friend that you know you can just go down that rabbit hole of like oh if this or that had happened then you know maybe they'd still be alive or maybe and it's just not a useful way to spend your energy and especially in that grieving context it's so tempting to fall into that if only thing um so you know i could i could name a hundred things that i you know if i could if i could go back in time and and be there and make different choices on behalf of humanity, I probably would, but I can't. So I don't really want to waste my energy there. I, I, I honor that and align with it myself. My, my take is that beliefs are not for mapping reality. Beliefs are for molding behavior. And that, uh, so I have a number of beliefs that I don't hold as necessarily ontologically true, but I do hold as profoundly useful. You yeah. touched on one earlier, this, this idea that we were chosen by the universe or that we chose ourselves to be alive at this time. 
who the hell knows whether that's true or not. And it, you know, but it's a really useful belief. It's, it's yummy and it helps me live a better life if I have this sense that uh, I was made for these times, that the universe in some sense chose for me or that I chose myself to be born at this time. Um, yeah, I'm, I mean, as long as it's held with humility, I think. Exactly. Rather, you know, exactly. Here, here, I, here I am. You know, the savior has arrived, people. <laughs> I can do no wrong. That's probably a less helpful story. Exactly, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think of those things, I think, as stories um, rather than necessarily beliefs. They're, they're kind of narratives for making sense of the world, as you say. And there's that, you mentioned John Michael Greer earlier, and I remember a piece he wrote several years ago that always stuck with me. And I, I think he said it came to him in a dream. Knowing no stories is ignorance. Knowing many stories is wisdom. Knowing one story is death. Yes. Yes. And, you know, that so encapsulates where we're at is that, you know, if, if all we have to make sense of the world is the story of this civilization and its glorious progression towards conquering the stars, then we're completely in a dire old mess because that story isn't leading us where it says it is. I mean, I'm, I'm always very struck by how we have all these um, sayings in our culture and quite often they seem to contradict each other. Like on the one hand, you've got uh many hands make light work and on the other hand you've got too many cooks spoil the broth and you're like well what am i supposed to do then do i want more people or fewer people you know what 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 but actually over time you realize that that's good like having a diversity of stories is good because it means you can choose the one that's applicable to your present circumstance like maybe in this circumstance actually we've got too many hands and we need to reduce maybe in this circumstance we need some help and so holding that diversity of possible stories is as john michael greer's dream told him is is wisdom and so much of my work, I think, is about offering alternate narratives to our present society so that as the present dominant belief system becomes harder and harder to reconcile with reality and mm -hmm. the, the burden of denial becomes heavier and heavier to maintain belief in that, then if there's something alternative to grab hold of instead that actually makes a lot more sense and is far more useful in our present circumstance, then I think that is a, a kind of crucial, a crucial cultural service that we can offer in, in, in moments where, yeah, where the dominant story is crumbling. Yeah. Yeah. No, I found that that particular essay, I mean, I, I, I love so much of John Michael Greer's writings. I think I've audio recorded uh, seven or eight of his books and um, just unofficially they're all available on SoundCloud but also um, his blog posts. I mean, I think I've recorded over 400 of his blog posts on the Archdruid Report. And his, just for anybody listening to this conversation, um, his book, Collapse Now and Avoid the Rush, the best of the Archdruid Report is a collection of some of his best essays that didn't make it into some of his other books. And I think chapter four or five is this one that you're now referring to, which is knowing, you know, knowing more. I, don't know. Than... I read it as a blog years ago. I don't know which chapter of the yes. collection it's in, but. Right, right, right. Exactly. Well, uh, Sean, I want to now move into what you touched on earlier, but I really want to go a little deeper in terms of impermanence and death. Many of us have found that a sacred, meaningful, inspiring approach to impermanence and death has really helped us to have equanimity and um, resolve, but, uh, but hope that's grounded in where we can make a difference, not hope for things that are actually going to further the problems around this understanding of impermanence and death, holding that in a sacred way. And I'm, I'm just wondering, 
both with the sudden death of your fiance and, and David within a, such a short time of each other, but just more in general, how do you hold impermanence and death? And has that assisted you in sort of this post doom consciousness? Hmm. Yeah, massively. Well, again, I think I need to open with a reading from David on this one because, okay. uh, because death is one of my all time favorite entries in the dictionary. Uh, and it's a short one. So I shall read it in full. Okay, great. By the way, anybody listening to this, I, I cannot recommend too highly Lean Logic, uh, a dictionary uh, for uh, surviving the future. And um, uh, these entries are all cross-referenced and you, you just follow your heart, open it up. It's sort of the flip and dip method. Just open it up, yeah. pick, put your finger down, read something, and then find where you want to go from there. And you can have, you can have a feast. It's a, almost like a devotional. Yeah, yeah, it's like a, it's like a choose your own adventure book. Sometimes think that David pre-invented Wikipedia because, of course, he was writing this decades ago. So I ran a course at Schumacher College a couple of years ago based around David's work, and one of the students on that course has gone and built an online version of Lean Logic. Oh, uh, which, really? Um, yeah, which we're going to be launching in a in a couple of months alongside the film that I mentioned earlier. And for those who are interested in the books, there's also this paperback, Surviving the Future: Culture, Carnival, and Capital in the aftermath of the market economy, which is sort of choosing one of those pathways through, as Michael mentioned earlier, and turning it into a conventional front to back narrative, what I sometimes call a gateway drug into David's thinking, because once you get hooked on that, you, you want the full, the full magic <laughs> of the holistic dictionary. Amen. Um, but yes, death. So this is, this is the entry on, uh, on death. Death. The means by which an ecosystem keeps itself alive selects its fittest, controls its scale, gives peace to the tormented, enables young life, and accumulates a grammar of inherited meaning as generations change places. A natural system lies in tension between life and death. Death is as important to it as life. A lot of death is a sign of a healthy, large population. Too much death is a sign that it is in danger, it is not coping. Its terms of coexistence with its habitat are breaking down. Too little death is a sign of the population exploding to levels which will destroy it and the ecology that supports it. No death means that the system is already dead. The reduction of life to an icon, the assertion that life, usually human life, is sacred, disconnects the mind from the ecosystem to which it belongs. It is a fertile error. Beneath the exaggerated regard for life lies an impatience with, a disdain for, the actual processes that sustain the ecology that sustains us. Expressing faith in the sanctity of human life is a license in a series of little, well-intentioned, self-evident steps to kill the ecology that supports it. The large-scale system, relying on its size and technology, and making an enemy of death which should be its friend, joins a battle which it cannot win. In systems thinking, death is sacred. That is so fabulous. I mean, that's that. Uh, I use the word in a non-otherworldly sense. That I experience as scripture. That is so inspired, so right on. Um, I'm reminded Loyal Rue, who's a philosopher of religion and, and a dear friend and colleague of ours, he talks about death being 
the ent- death is the entrance fee paid on exiting. Uh, <laughs> That's good. Uh, but I love the ecological grounding of that of that experience. So thank you for sharing that. That was perfect. Mm, no, it's really, as I say, it's one of the entries that um, that I personally find quite moving. And of course, for me personally, I discovered that entry in David's manuscript whilst trying to come to terms with David's own death. Wow. <laughs> and it was helpful. Um, I mean, you know, I mentioned those incredible conversations that, David and I would have down at the uh, White Bear, I think the local pub was called, in Hampstead, and um, and how they genuinely were among the, the most valued experiences of my life and most delightful. And of course, because Lean Logic is in this very unusual structure, I mean, it's such an authentic replication of David's mind, <laughs> um, the the unexpected connections that he would draw between seemingly unrelated things. And so, yeah, reading that in the aftermath of his death and indeed Maria's death, it, it really helped. It really helped to, to remember what death is in that ecological context and that it has its place. That I mean, it's, it actually now reminds me of another conversation I had with, with Jonathan Porritt, who is David's lifelong friend. And I was saying to him one time that sort of slightly bashfully saying, you know, I sort of think that Lean Logic's probably better now than it would have been if David hadn't died because, you know, I, I've been able to sort of edit it, and, you know, like actually do some work on it. And Jonathan burst out laughing and he said, sure, of course it's better. It still wouldn't be published if David yes, exactly. <laughs> Which I'm sure is absolutely true. And it's only occurring to me now that when David writes about, um, you know, deaths making space for future generations and allowing the passing on of wisdom that, um, yeah, it hadn't really occurred to me quite how pertinent that. <laughs> that actually is and so as I mentioned um, the process of, 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 of grieving for me on a personal level I think brought me a lot that really helped with my, my grieving on, a, on an ecological level um, and also you know helps with regard to, to one's own impermanence to my own you know impending death at some point in the coming decades if we hold that awareness of, of our own impermanence in this form at least then again I, I mean I always come back to this it comes down to well, what do we want to do while we're here you know like oh if if I if I'm asked like what's the meaning of life that's the best answer I've got to to tell a story with your life that you're completely thoroughly authentically proud to tell honestly and that you sort of look back on and smile or laugh <laughs> and and that, you know, as I say, there's nothing in these times that stops us, stops us doing that. But somehow looking death square in the face really helps us to do that. Because it's, it's as I say, it's honesty and it's joy that are the most amazing guides that I've found. And grief is actually the pathway to joy. Because if we're, if we're suffering loss, whether it's, whether it's loss of a loved one, whether it's loss of a future, whether it's loss of a story, whether it's fear of losses to come that loss shuts us down and grief is the process by which we come back to life and the process by which we rediscover joy and death is central to that yeah amen well said wow so uh last question um uh in coming to terms with the cascading problems of overshoot resource depletion uh climate breakdown and so forth 
have you encountered stages of grieving that went beyond mere acceptance? Like what Paul Traferka talked about is finding the gift and then what opened up for you positively on the other side. So you've already touched on this, but just any sort of um, concluding remarks along this notion of dark optimism post doom around finding the gift in these times where not only are we in collapse in contraction, but that we are looking at the possible extinction of our species in the not too distant future. I mean, our species will go extinct at some point, but it it could be in the not too distant future. So how do you hold that in terms of finding the gift? Yeah. The one thing that we've touched on that I feel maybe calls to say something slightly more about it is what you were saying about adopting a wider sense of self, you know, things are often framed in this selfishness versus selflessness thing that, you know, if we're, if we're environmentally aware, then we, again, sort of sacrifice our selfish desires for a, for a wider good kind of thing. But as you were saying, and as Joanna Macy says, and as many people say, once we cease to see our identity as being shorn or, or whoever. Um, Skin encapsulated ego is the way that. Uh, as Alan Watts put it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Once we get beyond that, then, I mean, I suppose for me, like, being selfish in the conventional sense was really unsatisfying, you know, to, to sit and, I don't know, consume and watch box sets or whatever the standard path that's held out for us as, as selfish consuming is. Like, that was really hard for me when I was becoming aware of the scale of suffering in the world. It just wasn't very satisfying it left me with this huge rift in myself between this pain about what was happening and the fact that I wasn't acting on it because I think you know if you if you if you know something but you don't act on it then you don't really know it you don't really know it in an integrated sense and so the only way that I could become more comfortable with what's unfolding on our planet was to engage with it in some meaningful way and I didn't know what that way was but actually even the process of trying to figure out what a way might be led to me feeling more alive and again like if there was one piece of advice i would give it would be like follow that that sense of you know what opens you up what feels like joy what feels like integration what feels like getting rid of cognitive dissonance in yourself because the more i follow that feeling the more it leads me to yeah to joy and to aliveness and to actually making contributions which people then feed back to me are really valuable whereas if i were trying to I don't know, follow the the narratives that are laid out and earn a bunch of money and become quite financially independent and all of that, I'm quite sure I wouldn't feel nearly as satisfied with the story of my life as I do by listening to these tiny little voices in the heart or spirit that, that just whisper, yeah, there's something there that's not quite right or that you need to look at more closely. Or And yeah, as I've done that, um, I've learned more and more about how overwhelming the times we're living in are in terms of what's unfolding how awful that is but i've also found far more joy in exploring that than i would have done in in keeping my head down and and trying to ignore it all so yeah i think i think we touched on a lot of that before but um but yeah that wider sense of who am i i think is really really key to being happy actually being happy in these times because there's nothing about these times that stops us from living good lives. Nothing. Yes. Amen. Amen. Wow. Sean, this is just so awesome. Um, (laughs) 
I will, I will make you this promise, and this is easy to make because it's just effortless, that this afternoon when Connie and I go for our walk among the Redwoods here in Eureka County, <laughs> Humboldt County, um, I will hug a really big, gorgeous one and I will channel your heart, brother. Oh, I'm so touched. I'm, I'm so touched. This is, this, is, this is a closing of a circle from, as I say, 2002 when I swore off flying. And I've flown once since for a, for a family medical emergency, which I have no regrets about at all. And yeah, this is beautiful. This is joining me back to that moment 17 years ago when I decided, you know what, I'm not going to fly. And right now I'm finding the way that I can be there through you, because if we're all one, then there I am. Yeah, no, it, it will be a profound experience for me to have that experience and just channel or bring you present in my imagination. So thank you. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm tingling. I'm literally tingling. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening. For the videos of all 75 of my post-Doom conversations, as well as other post-Doom resources, visit postdoom.com.